Okay, there's gonna be a lot of a lot of boys. Good morning. Uh, let's start off with uh, start off with prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and thank you for the ability to come together and fellowship and and discipleship, Lord, and learn your word. I pray that you'll be with us uh, and be with me specifically, Lord, that I will relay your word and your teaching as you would have me do it in accordance with your word. And I pray that you'll bless this day and the upcoming service and that we'll just be edified in Jesus name. Amen. Well, good morning. So the class today is on limited atonement. I feel like this is a test. I don't know that you could have given me a more difficult topic to cover in 30 minutes. So appreciate you, Rev. Love you. Um, in all reality, though, limited atonement, uh, the third point of the five points of Calvinist soteriology, you could probably spend a week on and still have some questions. So what I'm going to do, obviously, within a 30 to 35 minute time frame, so I'm going to kind of use uh, just my style of teaching, but I've made some notes here. <clears throat> but to start off, <clears throat> excuse me, limited atonement or particular redemption, the question is, does man's will ever super supersede God's will? Now, in order to kind of relay all the information I want to within a 30-minute window, I, I'm going to take a different approach than maybe a normal uh, theological discourse would take, Okay. So to start, um, in order to understand any doctrine or propositional truth, we must first start with God and what he has to say about himself and the matter in question. This is a fundamental principle of understanding any particularly difficult subject in Scripture is you start with the word and you end with the word. Uh, this discourse will be based on the presupposition that God has given us his plan for us, not our plan for him. And I think therein lies the major difficulty in understanding any doctrine and the big divisions that you'll see. This doctrine right here, limited atonement, has probably caused more arguments and divisions throughout church history than anything else because it, at first glance it seems to say that only some can be saved. And that's, that's kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around. So we're just going to try to tackle it head on. So the first term now, because atonement is a legal term, we're going to define what it is according to what the Bible has to say about it. Okay? Now, atonement is a reparation for an offense or injury. To stand as an equivalent to make reparation amends or satisfaction for an offense or a crime by which reconciliation is procured between the offending, offended and offending parties. Now, the act of atoning is the cleansing of impurity. And in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the cleansing of impurity needed to happen to prevent God from leaving the temple. So we'll want to keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, the will. Now, this is my own definition, okay, uh, based on everything that I've tried to study, understanding the will and human nature. But the will, according to the best, best uh, information I can gather from Scripture, is the faculty, uh, which is an inherent mental or physical power or a natural aptitude, by which a person decides on and initiates action. Okay, so one of the first things I want to do is take a look at what the will is, or a better description of it, rather. So I used an, an analogy. This is Will. Will is a free man, okay? Will has a face, too. Very handsome face. He's kind of short, a little chubby. 
Great personality. Okay. But Will's face has a value, so we're going to look a little bit deeper into Will. Okay. Now, Will, according to the Bible, flows forth from your nature. And if you've ever asked, well, what is will? And the big question that you always hear in theology is, is free will actually a thing? So just to kind of sum it up, instead of going down two different roads here, I'm just going to bring it back to a head here. The reformed stance on free will is actually what's called free moral agency. And I'll talk about what that means. Nature is the composition of all all of uh, his, excuse me, will's nature is the composition of all his attributes, emotions, abilities, qualities, and character. Best definition of nature that I could come up with. Now, I want to use an analogy to kind of help better understand what nature actually is. Imagine if I were a horse, and here I have a a trough of hay, here's a bowl of cat food, and over here is a bowl of dog food. Now the horse, all things being equal, when he gets hungry, what is he going to eat? Because the hay, right? Because it's in his nature. Now, that doesn't mean under certain circumstances that the horse can't go and eat some dog food. And you'll have to pardon pardon the crudeness of the analogy, but I want to use like a simple uh, metaphor here, if you will. Now, a dog, dog food, cat food, hay, which is it going to choose all things being equal, the dog food. But we know that dogs will eat anything, right, given certain circumstances. In order for the horse to desire something other than what it's designed for, its nature or its character, its qualities, its abilities must actually be changed. The same with the dog, the same with the cat. They desire what's in accordance with its nature. <coughs> so it has a will, and that will, the will is free, but that will is bound to its nature. And that's what free moral agency is. So yes, Reformed theology does teach that you actually do have a will, and it is free, but it is bound to your nature. You're going to choose what is most in accordance with your desires and what your aptitude and your, all of these things here, your um, emotions, abilities, qualities, and character desire the most, all things being equal. It doesn't mean under certain circumstances you can't choose something that is not particularly catered to your nature, okay? And this will make sense here in a little bit when we tie it into. I promise this comes back to a limited atonement. I know that sounds a little off right now. Now, so looking what the Bible has to say, when it talks about the heart of man, it's not actually, we know, talking about the physical beating heart. The heart, according to the Bible, is the seat of the intellect. It's where your nature actually resides. It's it's the composition of your nature. It's everything about you, okay? Now, your heart, um, actually, let me go this way real quick. Imago Dei. Have you ever heard this term? Latin for the image of God? Okay. You are an image bearer of God. So in, under, in order to understand what your heart or your composition is made of, you have to understand a little bit about what God is made of. Now, the composition of God, if it, if it is to be said there is a composition, his nature is that he is made of love. This is actually what he's made of. He's made of righteousness. He's made of justice controversial point, but he is made of wrath and vengeance. There is a hatred within God. It is a righteous hatred. Let me use an example real quick. If you love what is good, you must hate what is evil, okay? But I'm not here to expound on, like, the hatred of God. God is the only one that can actually have a righteous hatred. But the composition of all of his attributes is his nature. God is also a creator. He must create. That is, that is part of his nature, and that's why you were created. Now, Think about this, an infinite being, 
creates a finite being. And that finite being there bears some of his attributes. It has the capacity of love or for love, has the capacity for justice, for righteousness, for hatred, for all of these things, but they are corrupted. Imagine taking a piece of metal and dipping it in like an acid. And you bring that metal out and that, that perfectly square piece of metal, if you will, is now corroded and is corrupt and it can no longer be rightly used for what it was intended for, but it's still a piece of metal, okay? It still bears the image of the intention of the creator, but it is fallen, it is corrupt, okay? So that, the Bible defines this human nature. Now this black dot here, this represents Adam, the federal head, and all of these dots here represent just man below him, okay, Every, everybody after him. <clears throat> because of Adam, because of the sin of Adam, all spiritually died. Now, what does that actually mean? Okay, again, a lot of discourse here kind of crammed into a few minutes, but basically what that means is spiritually dead, according to the Bible, does not mean that you're not capable of loving, that you're not capable of discernment and things like that. It means that you no longer desire God because you now are disconnected from God, the very life giver. Does all of that make sense? Okay, your nature has changed. Spiritual deadness means you will not respond to God because it is no longer in your nature to do so. You will look for things, um, excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. You, will, uh, you, you still have these abilities to, to love, to care, and, and to, you know, for patience and things like that, but as you all can probably quickly agree, it's, it's not exactly what it could be, right? Now, spiritual deadness. So that's where uh, limited atonement, coming back to limited atonement, I want to look at it this way. Make sure I didn't skip something real quick here. Okay, so now if I were to take and draw some dots here. Okay, now one of the attributes of God is actually justice the justice of God. It's an important attribute. And this is how limited atonement starts to tie into to part of who God actually is. When God looks at all of man all throughout time, what he sees is an entire race of human beings that have broken his law. Bottom line is. Now think about this. If I were a judge and uh, let's say a young man is caught stealing like a pack of candy from a shopkeeper and he, he gets caught and he comes before the judge and the judge looks at the young man and says, now, you've been found, you've been caught red-handed. You've even admitted that you stole this candy from this man, okay? But I tell you what, I'm a good judge, and I'm a forgiving judge, so I'm going to let you go. You're forgiven. You're free, okay? Meanwhile, the shopkeeper's like, well, okay, that, that's, that's no fun, but okay. Well, the young man that gets set free goes back, and he comes around, and then he actually robs the shopkeeper, takes all his money and takes anything he wants. He gets caught. He comes back before the judge. He's standing before the judge, and the judge says, I'm a good judge. You, you've been caught red-handed. You've stolen from this man. You've robbed him at gunpoint. You're just a terrible person. But I'm a forgiving judge. I'm a good judge. I'm going to let you go free. And the shopkeeper's going to be like, there's, there's no justice with this judge. What's, what's going on here? That young man, sure enough, comes back later and does something absolutely unimaginable commits a terrible crime, he gets caught, gets brought before the judge and says, you have been found guilty of rape and murder of this shopkeeper's young daughter. That's absolutely terrible. But I'm a good judge. I'm a forgiving judge. 
I tell you what, don't do it again. I'm going to let you go free. The shopkeeper would be like, there is no justice with this judge. Why am I saying that? Because guilty criminals don't fear good judges. God is a good, just, a good judge. He, his justice is part of his attributes. He cannot deny his justice as well as he cannot deny the love that he has. Okay, it's, it's two equal and infinite attributes about himself. Does that make sense? Okay, now when it comes to God's justice, looking at all of the people from the beginning to the end of time, he looks at them and, it, and this, is, this is how I see limited atonement. He says, okay, I am a good judge. I cannot let these people go free. All of these sins need to be called into account in order to satisfy my justice. But we're looking at a people that are spiritually dead. They will not respond to me because it's not in their nature to do so. So what am I going to do? This limited atonement simply says that at an undisclosed, for undisclosed reason, God simply chose to save some. And regeneration says that will now has a new nature. His nature now will respond to divine stimuli. Okay? And all of these people here, oops, sorry, used the wrong marker here. All of these people here are what's called the elect. Hard truth. You either have one or two camps here when it comes to this right here. Either God looked down through the corridors of time and said, Hey, is that, is that Mark Kuyper down there? My eyes don't see so good. <laughs> either he said, Hey, Mark's a good guy. Dutch can save money. Really nice guy. Good, good with jokes and movie quotes. I think I'm going to save him. Uh, Kay, really nice lady. Makes beautiful quilts. Going to save her. All right. He doesn't disclose that information. Okay. As, as Charles Spurgeon said, uh, when he was challenged on, the, on the, uh, the doctrine of election, he says, well, if you pull up their shirt tails and show me if they have an E written on their back, then I would just preach to them. Okay? But, what he do, but what you do see is that God is glorified in the salvation by the sending of his son to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to select for you a bride, and I'm going to save that bride. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will take out their heart of stone, I will give them a heart of flesh, and they will be careful to observe my commands. Now, I could cite numerous passages of Scripture to support this claim, but really simply put, that's what the gospel is all about, okay? That does not mean that these people are excluded from salvation. It simply means that God's justice will be displayed in the damnation of the reprobate. It's really quite simply that hard truth, but it's right there in Scripture to see. Um, some of the passages I quoted, Ezekiel 36, uh, the one I just quoted, John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John 6, 37, this is an interesting one. All the Father that, all the Father, excuse me, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 44, pretty much flies in the face of what's called free will. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That pretty much eliminates any argument against limited atonement or, uh, or election. It's right there in black and white. Now, in order to properly understand all of these scriptures, I, I love the analogy of the, the math equation. I, I made the analogy. so yeah. But anyways, it, in a math equation, whenever you have all the premises, right? Whenever you're trying to find out the answer to a certain problem, if you don't gather all the proper information and gather it properly, your proposition ultimately comes incorrect. Okay, you have to gather all the information correctly. It's the same way with doctrine. When you have a particular subject like atonement or election, in order to properly understand what it is, you have to bring together all that scripture has to say about that subject in order to get a proper understanding of it. At a first and shallow glance, when you look at passages like John 3:16, for God loved all the world, that whosoever, we're like, well, that's free will right there. But when you couple it with everything God has to say about the will, what you're actually looking at is John 3.16 is the most blessed assurance, excuse me, the most blessed scripture of assurance of salvation. It doesn't mean that anybody in the world will come to Christ if they just wanted to. Okay, there's other things I could go into there, but um, did this analogy kind of make sense? Okay, I know that's kind of uh, fundamental, rudimentary, whatever, but um, it's kind of hard to... I'll make sure I don't run over on time, too. Um, atonement, okay. Now, here's the big objection, okay? Atonement is either limited, and actually, I don't really like to use the word limited. You could say the word specific. God specifically saved some, and God specifically chose the damnation of others. The criteria to which he does that is not disclosed in Scripture, and probably for a very good reason, Okay. But what this actually does, if you think about it, if you take it to its logical conclusion, it actually gives you a solid assurance that not only, even though I did choose God, the cause of my salvation, the cause and effect, the cause of my salvation was God himself looking upon me in mercy and said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. It eliminates the possibility of any kind of work, even choice, choice as an instigator of salvation. Okay, remember the cause and effect, okay? Um, one more thing, too. Atonement is either limited or it is universal. Now, have you ever heard of the word double jeopardy? It's a legal term. Okay, double jeopardy. Did I, did I write it down here? Ah, double jeopardy. The, prosec the prosecution of a person twice for the same offense. If God died for everyone and paid for the sins of everyone, yet someone still went to hell, that would make God corrupt. Because that means that sin was paid for, but they're still going to hell. Neither does it mean that potential salvation, because it also, if you think about the, the perfectness of God too, his, is, is it God's plan for us, or is it Will's plan for God? Okay, and that's really what it comes down to. Uh, one other thing here. Okay, so let's go over some common... Oh, I'm sorry, I almost completely forgot this. Um, atonement is either limited or universal, and the only conclusion you can come to with universal atonement is universalism. If God died for everyone, everyone would be saved. Now, neither does this mean that we have an exclusivity as though... Well, they have to be chosen. That's not our job. What is our job? What is the great mandate? What's the great commission? We go forth 
and we share the gospel. Okay, now here's something else to think about. This is another hard truth too. The gospel being shared with people that aren't predestined to salvation does not come back void. It doesn't. It serves to further indict. You come to your day of judgment and having rejected the gospel all of your life, that is a, that is a solid indictment against you. It's a, it's, a, it's a harsh thing to think about, but the reality is it's right there in Scripture to be, uh, to be seen. Okay, so common objections. Uh, we'll take on one of the hardest ones, actually. Uh, John 3.16, the, wor- the, word, uh, the, the word the world. Okay, so think about this. Uh, John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that whosoever should believe in, in him should, have everlasting, should not perish but have everlasting right. life, right? I really butchered that, but... But you, you know the passage. Who doesn't? So think about this. If, if God is talking about, what is he talking about when he's talking about the world? It's really simple if you look at it this way. Imagine we've got all sorts of believers in the area of Grove, in the area of Oklahoma, the United States. If I were to go to Korea, there would be believers there. If I were to go to China, there would be believers there. Amongst unbelievers, the Middle East, you name it. When you look at the big picture, that is the world of believers. And also understanding, too, that God has the, a disposition of love. There's a difference in what's called the decretive will and God's will of disposition. Okay. Um, what was the other one I was going to talk about, too? Oh, okay. Second Peter 3.9 is a big one. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. But all should come to repentance. Okay, the answer to this objection is really simple. Go back to the first of the epistle. Who is the letter being addressed to? To believers. It's right there in black and white. This is the most common objection to limited atonement right there. But you really, all you have to do is use a proper hermeneutic. If you go back to the first part of Second Peter, you see it. The letter is addressed to believers. Paul is addressing uh, Peter and the believers. Okay, that's, that's all that is there. And, and then also, too, I kind of like to use this analogy, too, and I, I was going to use this earlier on. You guys remember the movie Back to the Future? Do you remember when Marty goes back in time and he sees the younger version of Doc Brown, 30 years younger, and, you know, they have a little bit of a dialogue, and, and Marty would occasionally says, wow, that's heavy. And Doc Martin would go, there's that word again. Is there something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull? And what you're looking at is the word that had a di- the word had the same definition but a different application. I believe when you go back throughout church history to use the word limited atonement, it is actually limited. But understanding the way that we talk now, it, it kind of denotes an exclusivity, as though the big objection against Calvinists is though that we're exclusive, that that the gospel's cut off to people. But that's not actually what it's saying at all. The gospel invitation is a universal call. It has a purpose for everyone, even those that don't believe. Our job is to simply share the gospel. The word doesn't come back void. Um, and I'll leave the rest of the time up. To, does anybody have any questions or anything? I don't know how much time I have left here. Scott, can you give a, um, just a brief definition? Limited moment is... Um, Actually, I'm not sure how I would define that. Limited atonement, uh, let's see here, would be the specific 
application of Christ's blood for the redeeming of his people, of his chosen or elect people. The purchase of his bride, right? Yep. Not everybody. That's true. He died for his church. One of the reasons why I think that has become such an unpopular thing, and it's probably always been unpopular. Here's something else to think about too. Um, this doctrine, Calvin's doctrines, uh, were actually a response. Reformed theology could rightly be called original theology. Because when you look down through church history, what you see is occasionally like a new teaching would start to spring up. And then, then a, it's like the Lord would answer with a theologian like Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or, or John Calvin. Because specifically in Calvin's time, it was Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch theologian that, that came up and started saying things like, well, no, we have free will. And his was kind of a lineage of, of Pelagian or Pelagius, uh, which was back towards the time of Augustine in the first or third century church. I can't remember. But Reformed theology is really just a rebuttal to false theology. That's all it really is. Um, it's, it could actually be called original theology. Now, also, here's something kind of cool. Limited atonement... ties in to the Ordo Salutis because you couldn't have the Ordo Salutis without limited atonement. The effectual call, God would not call an unrighteous people unless he had a plan for redemption. Okay? The conversion could not happen unless um, the conversion could not happen unless that there was a way to convert them from unrighteous to righteous. Justification is a legal term. You cannot justify. Remember, that judge justifying that young man would be absolutely corrupt unless an atonement was made for whom the, he committed the crime against. Okay? Adoption, uh, sanctification, and glorification, they all kind of fall in line here. Um, and then two, uh, if you... Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola Dea Gloria... Um, that it all kind of ties in there as well. That's not the most, um, not the best job I've ever done, but <laughs> does, does anybody have any questions at all? Any, any points they want to talk about? One point about continuity with the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were limited as well, right? They were like, like you would bring a lamb for Israel, not for the whole world, but for those who would put their faith in God's system of so, Yes. Yes, that's absolutely true. When the high priest made sacrifices, he made it for his people. He didn't make it for the sins of the world. So that's a good point. Um, if you are interested in further reading, I specifically, I, uh, I went to the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin. Book 3, Chapter 21, deals specifically with election and limited atonement. Uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Very good uh, book, a little more modern. And A Summary of Christian Doctrine by Louis Burkhoff. Um, also addressing these, uh, this issue as well. But that's pretty much it. I know that's a little shorter than I wanted to be when I went over this. I swear I skipped about half the stuff I wanted to say, but 27 minutes, I think we're pretty good. <laughs>